that any views and opinions expressed are those of the authors and or participants and do not necessarily reflect the views, policy, or position of the Gastroenterology Learning Network or HMP Global, their employees and affiliates. Welcome everyone to IBD Drive Time. I'm Raymond Cross from the University of Maryland School of Medicine and my co-host as usual is Millie Long from the University of North Carolina. Uh, this is part two of the best of DDW for IBD Drive Time. I'd like to remind everyone that we are sponsored by the Gastroenterology Learning Network and Advances in IBD. Also a reminder that we're now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and you can search for us on the Gastroenterology Learning Network. Um, last announcement is that there is an in-person regional advances in IBD coming up in Chicago, July 21st to July 22nd. Both Millie and I will be there as speakers. And as you know, these regional IBD courses are wonderful. So Millie, now with those announcements, why don't we talk about your top three abstracts? Absolutely. So one of the things I had the pleasure of doing at DDW was moderating uh, the clinical trials session for uh, IBD. And so I selected three of the abstracts from that session. Uh, you know, randomized controlled trials can be great for looking at effectiveness of interventions. They're great for um, shorter term outcomes. I think you talked to us a little bit more about some longer term outcomes. But I think that there were three that um, could potentially uh, influence uh, the way we manage um, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. The first one I wanted to talk about was, uh, it was actually an Australian study um, that looked at withdrawal versus continuation of a thiopurine in vetalizumab-treated patients with ulcerative colitis. And this was a multi-center randomized control trial. And I think that many of us know as background that vetalizumab really has low immunogenicity. So you don't really develop antibodies to this drug. So when you're using a thiopurine, it's probably not influencing things from an immunogenicity standpoint. So this trial went about to assess, is there something different in terms of efficacy, you know, in those who are continued on a thiopurine? And interestingly, because it was set in Australia, they have some step guidance where kind of everyone has to go through a thiopurine to get vetalizumab. So um, this was a logical question. Let's, as they move through and someone stays on the thiopurine, if they're randomized to that versus withdrawal immediately. And so this was a prospective study um, and they actually enrolled 62 consecutive patients um, either to withdraw, that was 42, or continue the thiopurine. And the randomization was very balanced. Um, and what they looked at is they looked at a number of different outcomes, um, kind of histologic activity. They looked at um, rates of relapse. Um, and additionally, they um, related at, looked at fecal calprotectin. So kind of both a clinical, um, you know, outcome of kind of relapse or kind of these biologic outcomes that I think of as a little bit harder, kind of the inflammatory type um, components. And what they found is that the thiopurine itself when it was withdrawn, there was no difference in vetalizumab levels. So that's good to know. You know, it doesn't really affect the level. Okay. But among those that had thiopurine withdrawal, they had increased calprotectin and increased histologic and histoendoscopic activity in ulcerative colitis. And in those patients with histologic uh, activity, despite deep remission, the thiopurine withdrawal significantly increased the, the instance of disease relapse, meaning the return of clinical symptoms. So I think that this is actually pretty important saying that, you know, among those individuals um, who had been, you know, on a thiopurine, adding vetalizumab, if they still have histologic activity or some degree of activity, you know, at baseline, when you're starting this, 
you know, that group in particular, if you withdraw the thiopurine, they may have a higher incidence of relapse. Um, and so I think this is, um, is really important. Um, and I think what it tells me is that, and I think I've thought this for a long time, is that the thiopurines are probably independently helping, you know, with inflammatory activity. There's, there's a group of patients that are going to do great on vetalizumab monotherapy, but that um, in addition, there is a group where um, if you, you know, withdraw the thiopurine, um, they can have a clinical relapse and return of other biological markers. And so, and using kind of um, some markers to help us to understand that, meaning if they're still, if they're on both and they still have some degree of histologic activity, you know, even though they're feeling okay, that's probably not a good patient to withdraw the thiopurine. So um, again, just a clue that there's there may be another role for thiopurines other than just immunogenicity. So um, really interesting, Millie. And I'm, you know, I don't like Venn diagrams, but this is probably one of the areas where Venn diagrams are helpful and that they're we all have patients that need two separate MOAs to control their disease. And we think of combination therapy as com combining advanced therapies, but that can include immunosuppressants as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask you how you would tease this out in clinical practice. So if you had a step therapy person that was doing well on vetalizumab and biomarkers were good and mucosa looked good. Um, when, if, if at all, would you have a conversation about withdrawal? And second part of that would be, how, how would you tease out whether it's safe to withdraw a drug? And then lastly, I know three-part questions are terrible, but how would you monitor them moving forward? Yeah, exactly. You know, and I look at this as kind of parallel to how we practice with other meds as well, where it's, if I had someone on both of these drugs, it, it was really kind of the histologic activity, you know, at, at baseline that predicted this disease relapse. And so if they're in remission and they're in it and, you know, and biologic markers are down, they don't have a significant histologic inflammation. Of course, I'm going to give them a trial at, at removing that thiopurine. But I think we have to keep in mind that the thiopurine does something. And whenever we're removing a drug like that, we have to really think about what's our exit strategy. Are we going to add it back? What are we going to do? And that if someone was feeling well, but had Mayo 1 disease throughout and still some active inflammation on both, I wouldn't withdraw the thiopurine. So I think that is something that would, would change my practice. And these data and others kind of tell me that it's probably both. It's not just that the thiopurine does immunogenicity alone. It's probably doing something else, you know, and helping to control some of the inflammation. So I wonder if a patient told you or I that they had absolutely no response at all to the thiopurine and or if they had a subtherapeutic drug level, if that would help us in some way. And then I think how I would do this in practice is I'd probably get an early fecal calpro within 60 to 90 days of withdrawing and probably plan for a scope six to 12 months to, to relook with, and that's my standard. That's when my standard anyway. Therapy. So yeah. um, I think you want to try to pick up recurrence at the earliest possible time point before they go into a rip roaring flare. No, I agree. And one, frankly, that's what I do too. I think, you know, that I'm a big believer in combination therapy with anti-TNFs and thiopurines. And, but I don't keep them on it forever either. Like you, you get them into a deep remission, meaning, you know, biologic remission where their calpro is not, you know, normal, they have endoscopic healing. And those are the folks that I then withdraw with a, with a backup 
plan should they relapse and kind of a monitoring plan to recheck fecal calprotectin, recheck, recheck their anti-TNF drug level after I've withdrawn the combo therapy. So it's the same thing with this. Like we can't just drop it and forget it because I do think that thiopurine has an independent effect, but we need to choose the right patients um, and we need to monitor. So it's kind of the same message, yeah. but I do think it's interesting to show that the thiopurines don't affect better levels, but yet when you stop them, there is an increased risk of, of relapse in UC on Beto. So it's important. a very important clinical message. How about your second? second so one? my second one, and so kind of keeping on the theme of, um, uh, of kind of these randomized controlled trials, I want to talk to you a little bit about the power trial. So this is the reason I like this is that it's a study of kind of what I do in practice. And now there's some data, you know, that helps me to understand, which is that this was the efficacy and safety of IV ustekinumab reinduction therapy in Crohn's disease patients with secondary loss of response to ustekinumab maintenance. And these are week 16 results from the, po the power trial. And so, you know, in clinical practice, I think many of us, when we use ustekinumab, we feel that someone who's initially done well and then lost response, you know, these are people where we might need a boost to their drug level to help them to recapture response. And there are kind of two ways of going about doing that. One is dose titration of the sub-Q, meaning go from every eight weeks to every four or six weeks. And the other is to give them an IV reload. And at least in my practice, it can be very difficult to get the shortened sub-Q interval because that's really expensive from an insurance perspective. But because the IV is less expensive, I actually am able to get some reinduction with IV. So I think these are actually very important data to help us to understand what does this do? You know, and it, you know, I actually add some safety data as well. Um, and so this was a, um, again, a randomized control trial. Um, again, among those who had secondary loss of response, and there were 215 patients included. Um, about uh, about 108 got the IV reload versus 107 that did not. They actually got placebo, and they looked at outcomes in both arms. Um, they looked at not only adverse events, but they looked at normalization of fecal cal, normalization of CRP, endoscopic remission and improvement, and improvement in IBDQ score. So lots of different um, measures. And essentially, let me get the safety out of the way. It's perfectly safe. There was no difference in adverse events. So that's that's really helpful um, from that perspective. Um, and when they looked at the um, Crohn's disease activity index, which is, as we know, kind of a little bit of an arbitrary index, but what is used in all of our clinical trials, when they looked at this primary endpoint at week 16, um, this was not met. So there was not um, a significant difference. However, the patients in this um, uh, population who received the IV reinduction really did show clinically me meaningful improvements at week 16 compared to those who did not for some of the objective endpoints, so inflammatory biomarkers and endoscopic outcomes. And so, you know, while it didn't meet CDAI, this is telling me that biologically this is helping and we have some data on it really improving uh, inflammation um, from that perspective. And so this seems like a viable option if someone does have, um, you know, set secondary loss of response prior to changing drug class, you really may be able to recapture in a, in a reasonable percentage um, with this. And in fact, when you look at the the difference um, specifically uh, in fecal cow, um, it, it, it did actually show um, uh, an improvement um, associated with this and then CRP normalization as well. So it's really interesting. And um, I think you and I saw this before it was published in abstract form mm -hmm. as part of an advisory board. And if I remember the numbers right, what was really interesting was in the group that just stayed on their therapy that got the placebo, 
um, I think it was like 40% or something clinically did well. So mm-hmm. a message I took home there was, okay, IV reinduction is better, but you know, if you just stay the course, sometimes things will settle out at least clinically. Now, whether those patients going out to a year or a year and a half would still be doing well, perhaps if biologic signature is not good, perhaps those patients aren't going to do well in the long term. But it also suggests sometimes that there are ebbs and flows in right. um, symptoms and activity and, and with some patients, patients can often settle out. But I think, you know, there's no harm in giving the IV reinduction. I agree. Our experience has been it's pretty easy to get. And this this study would support it, probably going to help justify it if we have issues with the insurance companies. And the numbers are pretty impressive. So for the IV, um, they had a clinical response in 49% as compared to 37% for sub-Q that just missed statistical significance. And then when you look at clinical remission, even it was uh, 33% versus 27%. And when you looked at CRP normalization, uh, I mean, again, yet again, you're seeing these rates of um, like 16% for istekinumab versus 10%. That's just with one dose. Um, and then most impressively, I thought for, they looked at uh, over 25% improvement in SESCD from baseline. And for IV, that was um, 40% as compared to 15% for the sub-Q. So again, we're seeing a, a, a sign here that this um, can have uh, certainly endoscopic and biologic benefits. So don't give up on the drug. Don't give up on the drug. They don't switch too quickly that there, there really may be a role for continuation, whether just continuing the drug, as you mentioned, a reasonable percentage will recapture response on their own um, or um, kind of an IV load um, like this. Um, or you could argue this data, these data don't support it, but you could consider even a dose titration um, subcutaneously if you could get it. All right. So, All right. so my last one is an easy one because it has a good take home message, which is um, on subcutaneous infliximab. Um, this is maintenance therapy for Crohn's disease, a phase three randomized placebo controlled study. It was called the Liberty Crohn's disease study. And the reason I bring this to you, and I'm just going to give you the take-home point, is this is coming, um, and I think that we all need to be comfortable and familiar with it. Subcutaneous infliximab um, has been available in Europe for some time, and there it's easily accessible. It's easily used by patients, um, and this is something that I suspect we're going to have an option for soon here in the U.S. Um, so this required, unlike biosimilars, uh, this actually required full registry trials uh, as any other agent. And so the product, which is C- CTP13, this sub-Q was more effective than placebo for all of its outcomes, including clinical remission, endoscopic response, clinical response, and clinical remission, endoscopic remission, and corticosteroid-free remission at week 54. And there were no new safety concerns. And so this becomes a, a great option um, for patients when you are um, using wanting to use infliximab, particularly for patients that travel a great deal or may have issues with infusions. I think we can be confident that it went through the same registry process as the initial infliximab had to go through. This wasn't approved on a, you know, biosimilar paradigm where it just has to show it in one disease state. This actually showed effectiveness in Crohn's disease. So I I think this is a viable option and I'll be using it on my patients um, when we're able to have it uh, here in the U.S. Millie, three three quick questions. I mean, obviously this is so applicable. We have patients that have been on infusions for years and years and years. Some of them are losing venous access and this would be a really nice alternative for those patients as well as new starts. Just remind me, was this the study at DDW that used the pooled placebo rates from other trials as the comparator? So everyone got drug or am I not remembering that correctly? Um, So no, they enrolled a total of 396 
uh, patients, 343 were randomized, and they had um, 231 in the active drug arm and 112 in the placebo arm. So they actually did have a, um, a, a placebo arm for a comparison. I can't remember what drug that was that used to pull. Yeah, there have been some really novel study designs where they used kind of the prior placebo arm of other registry studies pooled data, which is a really interesting uh, statistical technique. I think it's still a little new and I think a little bit more um, or not as robust. Um, so just because we don't have as much experience with that um, and whether this will in the ult ultimately, if you kind of see in the real world, you know, will we see similar um, response differences? But here they actually did have the traditional placebo right. on. And but very obviously that approach is very patient centric for and what oh, patients and very patient trials. centric. It's and always, then just just yeah. to follow up, if I from my memory, the clinical, the PROs, the clinical outcomes numerically were just looked really, really good better than what you'd expect for intravenous. And if I remember right, the drug levels, the PK of this drug oh, was phenomenal. The PK was phenomenal. So I think the argument is you may get a more steady um, PK by doing the sub-Q infliximab. So there's actually, it's not, I think many, there are many of us that are there, there's the thought in the US that, oh, sub-Q may not be as good um, as IV, but I think that is definitively not the case here. So the co-primary endpoints, clinical remission, active drug 62%, that's pretty wow. good as compared to 32% placebo for endoscopic response, 51% active drug as compared to 17.9% placebo, all with a really good area under the curve for the drug level. So I I, I feel like we're, we might be getting kind of a, a, I won't say more sustained, but a very well sustained drug level throughout the dosing period by using the sub-Q approach. So you think you need to use combination therapy with the sub-Q given how good that PK is? That we don't know, and that this study did not tell us. Um, so it, it is an interesting thought. Will we see less immunogenicity over the long term? We don't know, but you could argue that there's the potential for that. I'm sure that data is available in the real world, right? Because they've been using the sub-Q for a while. I don't know it, but I'm sure that it has to be available. Somewhere. They've been using it for a long time in Europe, but remember in Europe, they have a step through with thiopurines. So they're often continued on the thiopurines. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we just may not have as much of the data as we'd like. I'm sure we will get it here in the U.S. as we start using this. All right. Super interesting abstracts. Any uh, parting thoughts, Millie, before we end? There's no, no just, back just for that us, I, I do hope people everything will consider the regional AIBD series and, uh, and we'll keep talking about more of these interesting abstracts, et cetera. Um, looking forward to our next meeting review, which will be, I guess, UEG maybe in the fall? Maybe. Well, thanks to our listeners. This is the end of Drive Time.